So this morning I want to uh, continue with the exploration of the four foundations of mindfulness, which we've been looking at for actually quite a number of months. This is the uh, ninth talk in the series. The other eight are all on uh, Dharma Seed. Today I want to particularly focus on the fourth foundation and go into some uh, new territory um, that we haven't explored yet. Uh, Last time I was actually planning to uh, do that, but it was the day right after Christmas and there were so many people who had so little exposure to the four foundations of mindfulness that I thought I could not presuppose the first three. So I did a little more review than I had uh, originally planned to uh, as a as hopefully a compassionate response to those present. <laughs> so, but, but today, compassion is out the window. We're going <laughs> no, not really. We will, we will, we will move, move ahead. Uh, move ahead with diligence, and et cetera. No, not really. Uh, we'll try to, the compassion will be there, but it's just in a different form. So um, we've been looking at the foundations of mindfulness, which is this core teaching, really the most fundamental teaching of uh, Spirit Rock and for, for us, of our practice, this quality of uh, present-centered, non-reactive awareness as a tool for transformation and healing. Quite amazing, it's so simple, right? Just to be aware without reactivity of whatever is going on in our experience as a way to come to deep self-knowledge and a way to come to freedom. It's so simple, but it's very, very clear. And what it essentially also means is that every moment of experience is workable. Every kind of uh, challenge or difficulty or stuckness or suffering, we can use mindfulness as a core tool, sometimes using other tools as well, that can help us to come to both greater freedom and greater responsiveness to the present moment. And this is really the aim of all of our practice. It's to respond wisely to the present moment. And that means the present moment as it manifests in my own inner experience, the present moment as it manifests relationally, and the present moment as it manifests collectively in terms of the larger community, the larger society, the world, and so forth. So that's really the essence of our practice. It's skillful, wise, compassionate response. In that model, mindfulness plays a key role because it lets us know what's happening both internally and externally. It's part of what lets us know what's happening. The first three foundations give us guidance to be able to be aware of what I uh, often call the constituents of experience. They help us to learn better how to be with various aspects of the body, first foundation, Uh, Being with the breath, being mindful of the breath is part of the first foundation. Uh, Also a number of other practices to be aware of the body. The uh, second foundation is to particularly be aware of the, what's called the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which is this very, uh, sometimes subtle, but very crucial practice that lets us study when 
something unpleasant is happening, when something pleasant is happening, when the mind says, I like this, when the mind says, I don't like this. And we study it. We don't study it so much as to change the experience, but we study it because when there's not mindfulness, when there's not awareness, typically we grab hold of the pleasant or what we like somewhat compulsively and we push away somewhat compulsively what's unpleasant or what we don't like. And when we have more neutral flavors of experience, we tend to space out because it doesn't, as it were, register on the survival monitoring device of our consciousness, right? It's not neither friend nor foe, <laughs> or neither, neither uh, threat nor possible uh, pleasure, food, whatever. And so um, very crucial second foundation. Third foundation is mindfulness, we might say, of thoughts and emotions. And we study uh, thoughts and emotions and other states of mind, particularly again, uh, really ultimately becoming familiar with the whole range of experience. It's one of the great powers of mindfulness practice that we can actually, over time, when we stay with it, we study the fundamental human experiences in more depth. We learn how to hang out with anger. We learn how to hang out with sadness. And we learn how to hang out with joy. We learn how to be with... uh, happiness, we learn how to be with fear. And we do this increasingly with the depth that lets us know what these states of mind and heart are, that lets us really uh, see them more clearly rather than simply react in our habitual ways. And we particularly see when thoughts and emotions are linked with when we're stuck. You know, in Buddhist language, we would say when they're linked particularly with greed, hatred, or delusion. When greed being that tendency to grab hold, uh, <coughs> hatred being a, sort of a term that we use as code for compulsive pushing away or aversion. And we learn to see basically when the mind gets stuck. And a large part of our practice is having our radar up or when the mind or body or heart gets stuck. So it's not so much that we have, that, we, that uh, any particular states of mind are the problem. The problem is more the stuckness. It's not that the anger is the problem or the sadness or the fear is the problem, but it's when we get stuck in them. When we, when, and mindfulness is essentially a tool to help us see clearly and move away from being stuck. So a big part of our practice is having this radar up, this having our uh, attention really uh, set up so we can particularly notice uh, stuckness, suffering, reactivity, fixation, whatever we call it. Those are different words that we use more or less to describe the same phenomenon of um, the mind typically uh, grabbing hold of something compulsively pushing away something compulsively or being caught in some kind of delusion uh, and that is very hard to get out of. And our practice is designed to do that. So with the first three foundations, we particularly look at these different constituents of experience. With the fourth foundation, 
we move into more complexity. And this is really the direction of our practice, that the, the, the four foundations are actually ordered so that we move from the more gross to the more subtle. We start, in a sense, with the body, the breath, which is more gross. We move towards the more subtle, that is, thoughts and, and emotions. And then we move even to the more subtle, because the fourth foundation really looks at patterns of experience or processes of experience. It brings in uh, more complexity. You know, and we could say it's not, it's not really there in the um, text itself, but I could imagine that one way we could even have a fifth or sixth uh, uh, foundation of mindfulness if we imagine the first four as primarily trainings that we first do in uh, meditation and protected environments, then we also want to bring out our practice into all the parts of our lives. And we could either imagine that as, okay, the fifth foundation, sixth, fifth foundation tells us how to be with people, <laughs> with, you know, with, uh, with others and so forth, and how to bring in other, other aspects of uh, interaction. But we could also think of this in terms of each of the four foundations we learn how to do it first in a training setting, in a protected environment. We develop more attention. And then for each of those four, we bring it out into our daily lives. And so there is a movement in our practice, we could say, both from the first to the fourth foundation, a movement from more gross level to more subtle level. And we could also think of that uh, in terms of each foundation, that we learn how to be aware of the breath, and then we increasingly can be mindful of the body in more complex situations, in interactions, in the middle of work, in the middle of uh, talking and so forth. And that brings in uh, more complexity. So this uh, fourth foundation is, uh, in the text, is called mindfulness of phenomena. And that may be uh, somewhat misleading in the text that we have. This is called contemplation of phenomena. And the, the word in the Pali is dhamma. And it, uh, dhamma is a word that's used in all sorts of ways, depending on the uh, context or the situation. Sometimes we use the word dhamma, uh, as uh, in Sanskrit, the word dharma, to mean the basic teachings. Sometimes it means that. The teachings about liberation is one usage of dhamma. Dhamma is also used to mean the way things are. We would say this is, this is the Dhamma. And here it's uh, also used in a third way to point to uh, what we might call things or phenomena. So there's, there are, there's a sense that these are all the Dhammas in the world, that you know, there are all the things, all the different phenomena happening. And that is a third use of Dhamma. But maybe to uh, clarify how that's used in terms of the fourth foundation, I think what this is really about is seeing uh, multiple phenomena through the framework of a particular principle or teaching. It's like looking at more complex processes uh, through the eyes of the Dhamma, or through the eyes of the teachings. So it's really starting to move away from the individual constituents to looking at um, how experience occurs in time, 
and how we might also respond to experience. So the first three foundations don't really involve that much responsiveness and don't involve the application of wisdom and don't involve so much looking at processes. You know, it's really seeing, okay, I'm sad right now. Let me just be mindful of sadness. What's that like? You know, of course, I watch it develop over time, but it's more or less just staying in the present moment with what's happening. Same thing with the breath. I'm mindful of the breath. I stay with the flow of the breath. Fourth foundation goes beyond that. It, it involves uh, a more complicated sequence and also involves responsiveness. So, for example, in the guided meditation, I offered a guided, guided meditation that would be a way of doing the fourth foundation, in fact, in terms of the last framework that's mentioned in the text. In the, in the text, there are five frameworks mentioned as frameworks with which we can practice the fourth foundation or practice bringing our mindfulness into more complex uh, patterns of experience. The first is working with what are called the hindrances, that which makes mindfulness difficult, strong desire, strong aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt. Those are the five hindrances, and I'll come back to those. That'll be the main focus uh, after I, I speak more generally about the fourth foundation. And then the second is looking at the, the what are called the aggregates, which are the constituents of personal experience. And again, I won't go so much into that now, but we've looked at that when we've looked at the study of the nature of the self, because what the uh, Buddha taught is that when we look carefully at experience, we find sensations, we find thoughts, we find emotions, we find all sorts of things happening, but we don't find a self, <laughs> right? We don't, we, we, we look inside, we say, oh, there's a self. It's by my third rib, <laughs> you know, or, or as, um, what did the, some of the, some of the, uh, some of the European philosophers used to say that the self or the soul lies in the pituitary gland. <laughs> Seriously. Some of you probably studied that. You know, people had serious discussions about this at, at a certain point. And, um, and so the, the third model is the model of the different uh, senses and how the senses work. And the fourth model that's looked at are the, are the factors of awakening, how we awaken. The fifth, uh, the fifth model is out of the Four Noble Truths. That's what I gave the guided meditation on, because essentially what the fourth foundation is about is really the heart of our practice. That is that we, once we develop the mindfulness of the different constituents, we, uh, we then learn to bring it in using different frameworks. We learn to bring the... Um, bring the practice into, into, into work. And I'll focus especially on the, the uh, hindrances in a moment. I brought the question. Yes, so I got it. Uh, so it's working with the constituents of personal experiences, how the senses work. I missed the fourth and the fifth. Um, the the uh, first foundation is mindfulness of the body. Second is mindfulness of feeling tone. Third is... Uh, called mindfulness of citta, which is mindfulness of thoughts and emotions. And the fourth is mindfulness of um, dhammas, or it's translated here as phenomena, sometimes also translated as mind objects, which is confusing, but 
mental objects, something like that, uh, mental conditions. But I'm saying that it's better understood as using a framework to see experience. So it's, seeing, it's looking at patterns and processes. So we, um, for example, with the Four Noble Truths, which we did in the guided meditation, the Four Noble Truths, this very central framework, the first teaching of the Buddha, really probably the core teaching that is offered here at Spirit Rock. Um, that teaching is that there is, at times, uh, suffering, dukkha, fixation, reactivity. I'm using those as synonyms for dukkha, which means a kind of off-centeredness. It's translated as suffering, but it's really suffering in the sense that's distinguished from pain, more that sense of struggle, not the sense of the unpleasant. And so uh, we, we uh, and the second noble truth is the fact that the root of that dukkha is some kind of compulsive grasping or pushing away. The third noble truth is that it's possible to have peace, possible to let go, to have, uh, to have freedom. In other words, despite all the challenges of human experience, freedom with any experience is possible. Even, even with extremely challenging experiences, freedom is possible. That's the, basic, that's the basic message. And then the fourth noble truth is the path that helps one get to uh, that, that freedom. And so we applied that uh, to our own experience here. Again, I have given the example sometimes very simple. I notice that I have some strong sensations in my shoulder. I'm kind of struggling with it as I sit. Uh, I, notice, I notice that, that I'm, again, I've made the, I've ascertained I don't have an injury here. It's okay to be with the sensations, and yet I don't want them. I'm struggling. You know, in my mind I'm saying, why am I meditating? What is this about? I'm just sitting here and my shoulder hurts. How is this going to help me gain freedom whatsoever? <laughs> you know, and I, I might do that or, and so forth. And the, the practice with this fourth foundation would be to start to see my experience and the world through this teaching. So that what this is beautiful is that this is saying the teachings are not just abstract, they're not just doctrines, but they're actually simple frameworks that can be like the lenses through which we look at experience. Quite, quite beautiful in that way. Not abstract philosophy, but really uh, practical, simple frameworks that can really help us to understand experience. So I can use the fourth noble truth, or the four noble truths, and I'm with my shoulder uh, that has a lot of unpleasant sensations. I notice I'm struggling, I'm suffering, and I first say, let me just study what that feels like. That's the first noble truth applied. What is that like to struggle? Right? What is that like? And we don't usually look at that. We just, struggling usually means we don't look at struggling. right? That suffering usually means we don't look at it because we just want to get out of it, right? And, and so I actually s stay with it and I notice, oh, actually there's my mind is, is kind of fighting. But actually, I, you know, there are kind of just strong sensations there. I can be with that a little bit. And, but let me just feel, how am I suffering? And then the second noble truth would be to say, how am I really um, grasping in some way? at that. It might be that I'm, you know, the grasping might be that I just don't want this to happen. I don't want those pains. You know, there might be 
thoughts in the mind, what's the point, right? Why am I doing this? And so forth. And I can notice that in some way there's a grasping hold. And I, uh, and I tune into that. I tune into the thoughts. I tune into the resistance to actually feeling those strong sensations. And then the third noble truth would be the letting go of the grasping. This would be, some of us might do this quite quickly, right away. It would, this might be just to say, can I relax into the sensations that are there? Can I let go of my scenario that when I come to meditation, I have no unpleasant body sensations. I just have calm, peace, and bliss. Right? Isn't that what we say in our promotional literature? <laughs> uh, but here it is. I'm sitting here. I came for bliss and peace, and I have shoulder pain. What's going on? I want my money back, or at least if I'm not here for the first time. <laughs> so I want my I want my money back, but then I can see, okay, let me just look at it, and can I just relax into those sensations? Can I let go of my whole scenario that there's just supposed to be peace and bliss, or whatever it might be? Can I let go of the body resistance to actually feeling the sensations? Can I relax into the strong sensations? Sometimes not so easy, right? Sometimes we can do that. And again, we might go right away there and just relax, but we can also be aided by saying, let me really apply the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth might be, again, the fourth Noble Truth is the path, it's the Eightfold Path. And so it's actually quite complex, but it would be generally the tools and the guidance that would help me to know, that would help me to let go, basically. It would be the mindfulness, the wisdom, the, uh, the various teachings, and so forth. So that would be an example of using the Four Noble Truths. And as we do that more and more, we start to see the world more and more through that teaching, which can be quite powerful, that we start bringing these frameworks into our everyday lives. You know? And so a teaching that is one expression of the Four Noble Truths is the teaching of the two arrows, which I often give, which is that we tend, when there's something unpleasant, to resist it to, because of pain, to, uh, to contract, to resist, to, to um, have some kind of reaction, and that we, in a sense, shoot a second arrow. You know, that when someone says something nasty to me, I say something nasty back. And all of a sudden, we start seeing these teachings when we look out into the world. We go to a party, and we see some people arguing, and we say, oh, there's grasping. <laughs> right? Or we start seeing these categories in our own experience and those of other people. We read the newspaper and we see, oh yeah, that con- there's a conflict there. One side has pain and it's trying to have the other side of pain. And it's just a complete circle, you know, a kind of a vicious circle of conflict, which is often the case interpersonally or in the world. And so we increasingly bring our, uh, our way of seeing the world into alignment with this teaching. So it's not just, again, it's not just an abstract teaching that we read about, but it, it actually enters into our very mode of perception, our very way of seeing the world more and more. And we train for that by being with that shoulder pain in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Now, the, uh, maybe just one or two more words to say generally, and then I'll go to the model of the hindrances. Um, 
the, what this does beyond the first three foundations is we start bringing in the factor of wisdom, the clear seeing of patterns, and we start bringing in responsiveness. So mindfulness in the first three didn't really involve responding too much or seeing larger patterns and being skillful in response. So now we're starting to do that. The letting go in this case is a kind of responsiveness. And so really the heart of our practice is the fourth foundation. You know, we train in the first three, but then the heart of our practice is learning how, particularly using different frameworks, how to be skillful with a variety of experiences that come up. In the fourth foundation, there is this very interesting sequence. And we could really take this as a core sequence of training where we first start the first framework that we use. I gave you the Four Noble Truths. That's the last one. The last one. That's about freedom. In fact, in this model, we actually work up to that. I gave it first because it's I think in some ways it's probably most accessible and it makes most sense of what this, this uh, fourth foundation is about. But really, the model here, which can look a little bit arbitrary when we first look at it, you know, when we read this text and we see, okay, there's the, you know, there's the first model is the five hindrances, the second is the five aggregates we look on over, then the six sense bases, the seven enlightenment factors, the four noble truths. That can be confusing as to what's really as to what's really going on here. But there's a way of seeing that actually what is being offered is a sequence of training that has a tremendous amount of logic to it. Basically, where do we start? What framework do we start with? We start with the model of the five hindrances. The hindrances are the hindrances to mindfulness. So we actually start with really bringing mindfulness to the very factors which make mindfulness in itself hard. On that basis, then we start looking further in experience. We look at the very nature of experience, of the constituents of of individual experience through the five aggregates and the senses. And then we start, actually, when, when we've done that, when we've looked carefully at experience in more detail, then we can start bringing in the awakened qualities of mind and heart and body. And then finally, with the Four Noble Truths, then we have a possibility of really accessing freedom. So it goes from the starting point in this fourth foundation is looking at what makes mindfulness difficult and actually impossible, and which, when the hindrances are there, we can't see the rest of experience. And we can't really uh, develop the awakened qualities, and we can't have freedom. And so you can see the sequence. It actually makes a lot of sense. It moves from what makes mindfulness difficult through looking more carefully at experience, through developing the awakened qualities, and finally having freedom. So it actually is quite a beautiful, a beautiful sequence, you know. And uh, so let's look, uh, let's look at the, the model of the hindrances and see how to practice with that using this model, because that's really I want to give attention to that, and I think I'll look at next time at the model of the aggregates. So you can look at the text, because I think it's helpful to look a little bit at the text. How does a a bhikkhu, or uh, it's translated here as monk, it's really how does a practitioner dwell contemplating phenomena in phenomena? And that's really 
dhamma in dhamma. That's what, that's what that's a translation of. Here one dwells contemplating phenomena and phenomena in terms of the five hindrances. So again, the five hindrances are those qualities of experience which make mindfulness and freedom difficult or impossible. And this is something which probably most of us have studied a lot. Uh, that the, the, the five, again, are usually translated as kind of a compulsive desire, a compulsive aversion, uh, what's sometimes called sloth and torpor, sleepiness, tiredness, sluggishness. The fifth, the fourth is restlessness and worry. And the fifth is doubt. And these are something that we actually need to know about when they're present. And so you can see that when, if I read a little bit further with the text, the instruction is going to be to know when the hindrances are present, know when they're not present, and also know what causes them. This is where we bring in the wisdom factor. This is actually a significant move beyond the first three foundations. We weren't looking at causes and conditions with the first three. We're just trying to, let me just be aware of emotions. Let me be aware of the body. Here, we're bringing in causes and conditions. So, how does one dwell contemplating phenomena in terms of the five hindrances? Here, when there is sensual desire, a monk understands there is sensual desire. When there is no sensual desire, he understands there is no sensual desire. He also understands how unarisen sensual desire arises, and how arisen sensual desire is abandoned, and how abandoned sensual desire does not arise again in the future. Yeah. And so, um, what we have here is, are a few things going on. We, and this is to be applied to all of the terms. And I'll, I'll explain the terms a little bit further in a moment, because they, they need to be unpacked, and some of the translations are misleading. Um, so well, let, me, let me go through them first. Um, the first of these is, a, again, some kind of strong or compulsive desire. And it's particularly when we're, when we're caught by desire. It's not that desire in itself is a problem. Desire is part of human life. Desire got you to this meditation setting, right? I want to go. <laughs> right. Um, and desire sometimes gets us to meditate, it gets us to eat, gets us to do a lot of things. I think the problem is when we're caught in it and when we somehow think this will bring happiness or this will bring, you know, it's like when there's something difficult happens. Have you ever had yourself have something difficult happen and you notice yourself walking like a zombie to the refrigerator? Has anyone ever had that experience? Okay, no one. <laughs> okay. Or noticing yourself, each of us probably has some habits that we do when there's stress, right? Sometimes they involve desire, sometimes they involve aversion. And what we're invited to do is give attention to, to when there's really, really strong desire. In terms of meditation, that would manifest as um, sitting and meditating, what, and thinking about lunch, right? Or thinking... You know, this would, or thinking about having a, a sexual fantasy in meditation, you know, um, which happens some here on retreats. That's a main preoccupation for quite a lot of people. 
you know, I know that because teaching retreats, they tell me what's going on. Which, but they look very serious and meditative, and, right? And other things were sometimes happening. <laughs> okay, so it could be, you know, all sorts. <laughs> All sorts, all sorts of desires. Same thing, aversion probably is a little more clear. You know, there's also, we can have a lot of very compulsive aversion. It can, it can take the form of anger, it can take the form of resentment. And again, uh, what we're looking at here as the problem is particularly when we're caught in something. In other words, um, again, there's some complexities here because just like that desire in itself is, is not wrong, aversion in itself is not necessarily a problem. I can be angry about injustice, right? And my anger may be, uh, there may be something there that's quite important, but when I get lost in the anger, that's a problem. And that's what this is pointing to. So it's a little complex in that way, because it's not simply that we, you know, uh, you know in that line it said, desire will not arise again, right? <laughs> that I think it's, I think this is my interpretation, and there'd be different, my interpretation that this is talking about something that's more compulsive. We're caught. We think that this will bring me happiness, and so forth. And the same thing with aversion. It's really the caught quality or the stuck quality that's being pointed to. And simply uh, not liking or not wanting something, if it's just a moment, might have wisdom in it, it might actually be used. When we get stuck in it, when I sit there not wanting the pain in my shoulder for 15 minutes. That's a problem, right? Or when I'm stuck in a, in a way with my anger towards my boss, and I'm just angry, 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 and stuck, and I'm not actually being mindful of my anger, that's a problem. And that's what this is pointing to. Then this is really about uh, not being mindful with these qualities. Sleepiness probably is more obvious as a problem when I'm sleepy, sitting there, my mind is clouded, um, and so forth, I can't really be mindful. So again, what's being pointed here, to here are states in which I can't be mindful. In fact, a skillful way to work with desire or something like anger would be to be mindful. And the mindfulness actually helps us maybe sometimes to see the wisdom in the desire or the anger and separate out the stuckness. So that's actually how mindfulness can work with that. The fourth is restlessness or worry, in which we are sort of consumed by um, the body sometimes being hyperactive. It could be anxiety, could be uh, in some ways we are unable to be mindful because just everything's all buzzing around. and there's too, there's too much activity in the mind or the body. The mind is going 100 miles an hour. That's what this is pointing to. Doubt is particularly pointing to when we doubt, um, could doubt ourselves, we could doubt the practice, we could doubt that mindfulness is going to do any good, and so forth. That often can be paralyzing. And again, the hallmark of the hindrances is that when they're present, we can't really be mindful. Um, let, me, let me reserve your question until later, unless it's a question of clarification. It is about the doubt. Yeah. I doubt that I understand what the doubt is. So could you go, you're, is it doubting the practice, doubting what you're doing, or doubting something in the world? It would typically be doubt in a way which is paralyzing. Uh, and again, if that's a translation, so 
if I read, you know, um, if I read some newspaper account and I doubt that that's really the truth, that's not what this is talking about. Or if I doubt... So when you say, what's the use of this? Is yeah, it's more, a, it's more a kind of, yeah, in, in practice, it's a paralyzing kind of doubt. We could doubt the teachers, we could doubt... Uh, again, this is, this is where the doubt becomes all-consuming and we can't be mindful. There often can be some wisdom in the doubt. You know, and, and some of you know there is actually a tradition in Zen where one is asked to create, uh, to cultivate the great doubt. You know, and so there can be wisdom in all of this. What the hindrances are pointing to is that when there are these various states, there is no mindfulness. Mindfulness is sort of blocked out. The mind is obscured by these tendencies. And there's, there's an analogy given in the tradition that the hindrances can be likened to what happens to a bowl of clear water in, uh, in various ways. So, for example, that kind of compulsive desire is when the bowl of water has tinted uh, dye in it so that the water is colored. And that we, as it's like seeing the world through uh, tinted glasses. We don't see accurately. We see, as it were, through our preferences, through our likes and dislikes. Uh, Aversion is like uh, the water is brought to a boil in the traditional model. Again, we can't see clearly because the water is boiling. The uh, sloth and torpor is when the water is full of algae, stagnation, a stagnant pond. <laughs> right? That's, and this is, again, it's like our minds are like this. When our, when our minds are caught in the sloth and torpor, they're more like that stagnant pond. And then restlessness and worry is when that water is windswept. And everything is tossed around. So again, we can't really be mindful. And doubt, doubt is likened to dark, muddy water in which there's a fundamental obscuration. And so what we, what we do with the hindrances are a few things. And, and this is where there is guidance in the, in the text. Uh, first of all, we can be aware of when they're present. We can also then be mindful of how it's manifesting in the body. And this, this is hard. It's easier with some of them. For example, it's sometimes easier to be aware of desire and aversion. We can hang out with those. It's quite hard to be aware of sleepiness. It's quite, it's quite hard to be aware of the mind really being kind of shut down and slowed down. But it's possible. Um, and this, this is something people explore a lot in retreats where we can actually start to be mindful of sleepiness, especially when we know that we're not really sleepy. Because a sense of sleepiness in meditation often occurs for other reasons than needing sleep. It occurs because there's an imbalance of energy in the body. Or we, are, uh, we don't have adequate concentration. And so we can actually study the sleepiness, be mindful of it, just try to say, okay, what is it like? What is this cloud-like feel? And we can have a little bit of mindfulness. And sometimes we can actually notice when the sleepiness goes away, like the cloud lifting. We can be aware of the restlessness, just feel that buzzing. It's not easy to do. The restlessness can sometimes feel like we're going out of our skin, right? It's hard to be aware of. And so we're invited to, to uh, be aware of these states 
And we're also, we're invited to do a few other things with this practice. We're also invited over time to see what leads to these states. In other words, what causes these states to be there. That's quite interesting. So that, that would require really having some sense, sometimes using reflection after the fact, saying, you know, I was really, really restless. What was that about? Well, it might have been about that I uh, had a lot of sugar or had a lot of chocolate. It could have been related to diet or it could be related to I had this really unsettling conversation. So we study as much as we can what are the conditions? Some of this is, again, is reflection after the fact. It's not all in the moment. So we want to have a sense over time, and this is what we do uh, over time, what kind, of, what kind of conditions lead to the hindrances arising for myself, you know, in general. Let me study that. What leads to, you know, sleepiness? Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes it's, it's a certain state of uh, being where there, there are very clear causes and conditions. So I can see that. What can I uh, let me look at those causes and conditions so that they might, so that these uh, conditions might not arise in the future? And then also, what's a skillful way to respond to the hindrances? And all of this is part of the fourth foundation. So it's seeing the larger pattern and in our and, and responding skillfully. So a skillful response to strong desire and aversion might be to be mindful of it. You know, in the text, in the, in the tradition, there are all sorts of things. These are particularly done for monks or nuns. So in order to avoid overly getting attracted to one's own body or other bodies, people would contemplate corpses and contemplate impermanence of the body. That, that's not something we usually do. But there would be ways that we could say, are there practices so I don't get so fixated, let's say, on my appearance, right? Could be, could be skillful, could be reflection, could be, could be um, really looking at that uh, carefully. Uh, or look, let me see the ways I get caught. You know, and let me, you know, one of, the, one of the main ways that we work in practice, let's say, with when I really get really angry, is can I see that there is a particular narrative, let's say, about this other person that I'm caught in, that I really believe is true. So there are all sorts of skillful ways to respond to these, to these, uh, to these states, to these five different states. So partly the invitation for practice is, maybe I'll just uh, end by saying that there really are at least three practices. One is noticing when these states are present. Secondly, is seeing if you can notice what leads to them arising. And then thirdly, see if you can find ways of working skillfully so that the stuckness or the caughtness by these hindrances diminishes. And that's really, these are three core ways of practicing that this fourth foundation of mindfulness guides us to. It's very similar to the application of the uh, Four Noble Truths. But you can see how what we're doing is we're starting to see our experience through the lens of this particular model. And we could use other models. You know, to some extent, we could bring in many other models that can be helpful. But this is really, this is a model particularly designed to look at the factors which make mindfulness difficult.
which make it hard. And again, first, noticing that these uh, so-called hindrances are there. Secondly, getting a sense over time of what the conditions are that lead to them. And then thirdly, knowing how to skillfully work with them so that they diminish. And a lot more could be said about the latter. Maybe I can do a little bit more of that next time. So let me finish here. Just take a moment to settle, kind of invite to come to the surface any question or reflection. have a little while for questions. Any, anything that uh, has come up for anyone you want to ask about? Please. On encompassing the hindrances, it's obvious when they come up and then, then you are kind of faced with it and you really either uh, are in distress or you as you are presenting, take a, uh, a mindful course of action, you know, at least observing it. Mm-hmm. But it's been suggested from what you said that you be so aware of their existence that you would uh, have them in your mind even when they're not there. There's something about he knows when they're not there. Mm-hmm. So is this something that you would have in the back of your mind you can look at your experience and say, now, where is this and where is that and where is that? Yeah, you're you're right. It's something I didn't mention that's in the text. The question is about the question of the hindrances not being present. And it is another piece that uh, is something that we've seen in the uh, some of the last talks about the foundations of mindfulness, that there is guidance actually to notice when a more negative state is not present. You know, and we saw that in some of the earlier foundations as well. And that is the guidance here. It's, to, it's not just to know when the hindrances are present, but to know when they're not present. And this is not something we usually do. Right? And it's not so much to worry about them, but it's to say, it's partly, I think, to appreciate that my mind is clear. Or, and it actually can be a way to cultivate joy and to cultivate uh, gratitude or appreciation. You know, it's like we basically take our clear minds or our free minds for granted. And what this practice is actually inviting us to do is to tune in more when we actually have a clear and balanced attention and to know and maybe to actually have joy about it or appreciate it. And, so, and that's what that instruction is about. We saw that earlier that there's also guidance to know when, it, when is there freedom? When is there freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion? And again, this is something which can be quite a powerful practice to tune in to the sense of freedom in the moment, which can open us up to more joy and to more happiness, actually. So a lot of, I know when James Barras teaches on joy, a lot of it is actually tuning in to the subtle, ordinary joy that's always there 
and when you tune into it, it can actually get bigger. It's actually a way of increasing our well-being and happiness. So that's actually what's, it's to appreciate, okay, when we're really attentive to the hindrances, we also know, hey, hey, no hindrances here. Cool. Let's have a party. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Maybe that's unskillful. Or, I don't know. But um, that's what this is about, I think. It's about, it's about uh, being attentive uh, but to the absence of the negative factors. And, and I think from uh, what that does is it does access a little more joy and happiness yeah. and appreciation. And I think that that's a common experience on retreats. When, when one can be on retreat and maybe there's been struggle in the past with some of the hindrances, and then one day, gosh, everything is just open and clear and spacious, and my, you know, and I'm just kind of balanced. Maybe there are a few little struggles here and there, but basically balanced and say, wow, that's cool. <laughs> that's really neat. So that's, I think that's what this is about. It's, the, it's that inviting, uh, inviting attentiveness, which can lead to joy. Yeah, thank you. It's a nice question. Maybe just one more, and then we'll then we'll close because we're we're at time. Any, uh, please. So the question I asked earlier, maybe you could give an answer about when you're worried about the future. Yeah. Whether it's you're going to be sick or yeah. whatever it is, it's a skillful way to, to use a tool to stop worrying about the future. Okay. So the question is, I notice that I'm uh, worried about the future. Could be that I'll maybe I'm sick, and I think, oh gosh, I'm just going to be sick a lot, or I. Maybe I have some problem and I think, oh, the problem's going to last forever. I'll never get out of this, whether it's financial, interpersonal, about one's work or whatever. It's very common, right? And, and we notice that there is that narrative. And as I've, I've often said, um, the single most common guidance that I give people in working with people one-on-one is be really careful of the narratives in your mind. Really watch the stories that you're telling yourself that it's, it's really connected to a lot of suffering. And so it's a, it's a really big area. And so where would that fit in, um, in these teachings? I think partly it would be the mindfulness that just notices that there is that repetitive thought. I could then really be, be aware of what it's like. What does it feel like? You know, what does it feel like when it's there? It might feel you know, I might have, let's say, if I think that the future is just going to be like the negative past, negative present rather, there might be a sense of heaviness, my body might be tight, there might be a kind of a collapse of the chest as there often is, the body and so forth, and you really notice that and you can be aware of that. Um, a key aspect of that would be to notice when those uh, stories come up. Notice when the narrative comes up. If it's possible, um, for the story to continue, one actually has to feed the story. Some of it will come up just by on its own, but the real suffering is when it comes up and we grab hold of it and somehow think that's the truth. There's some, in other words, there's some active way that we feed those stories, sometimes half-consciously. And when we have more mindfulness, we can really notice that more carefully. We, I mean, we also want to have some reflection. We can have reflection that says, you know, I actually don't know. So we can, we can work with these different factors. Mindfulness says, let me know what it's like. Let me see it. Wisdom might reflect on it and say, I'm making a very 
negative pronouncement about the future. Do I really know this? And you might say, of course, not really. You know, or you might, your wisdom might say, I always get negative when I'm in a bad mood, right? That the negative thoughts arise in certain situations very commonly. I can know that from the past, right? And wisdom can say, you know, be careful. You're in a difficult emotional place, and it's very likely that you're going to have these negative thoughts arise, which you'll believe, which will get you more into a funk, right? And so you can, that can be your wisdom. And then the mindfulness can really notice that they're happening and can then, and this can, and then your, your clear intention and your determination can say, I'm not going to feed them. When they come up, I'm going to not, I'm going to just cut it as best I can. Say, thank you for your opinion. You know, you have uh, five minutes today and five minutes tomorrow and that's it. And uh, any more than that, and I'm going to say, ah, you're out of here. <laughs> right? Something like that. Right? And you can actually be very firm and direct. And it's also good training for, you know, real life interpersonal relationships. <laughs> um, but but something, <laughs> something like that. And so, th- and then, um, yeah. So the mindfulness is going to play a key role because... Of course, those kind of negative thoughts happen when we're vulnerable, right? When we're vulnerable in a difficult place. And somehow there has to be mindfulness and determination in those moments. And so um, that's, that would be a short answer. But it's, um, it's, a, it's a really important part of our practice. And we could also, um, you could also do, the last thing I'll say is you could also use the Four Noble Truths. You could say, okay, I'm suffering. Okay, why am I suffering? Is there grasping or attachment? Yeah, I'm really grasping on to that negative story. Okay, is there a way to let go of that negative story? Can I let go of it? Well, it's not so easy. What's going to help me? And then you think of these different means. That would be the Eightfold Path, or the Path of Practice would give different tools and perspectives, which is pretty much what I just did, right? These different perspectives on how to be skillful. So you could use it that way. Probably the easiest is just to say, let me really be on the lookout for this, experience it, and not feed it. That's probably the single most direct uh, guidance. Yeah. And that's not easy. And get support from friends and you know, listen to talks and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Good. So let's just uh, sit quietly for a moment. And I'm going to be back in two weeks. And I'm not sure what Linda's going to talk about. I'll tell her what we've talked about. But I'll invite you to, for the next two weeks, to do, uh, to do the practice with the Fourth Foundation. You can do it with the Four Noble Truths, really look out for a moment of suffering. You can really do it something like we've just said, look out for a really negative storyline that's pervasive in your life. You can do it with the hindrances. Okay, but I, so just, I'll invite you just to, in your own mind, have your intention about what would be helpful for you in light of what we've explored. For some of us, it just would be, I'm going to really have a strong mindfulness practice with it, not even think about this other stuff. Have that practice for the next two weeks. And we close by 
Remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but also for others. And may our practice, may our mindfulness, may it be of benefit to ourselves and to others. Ultimately, to all beings, without exception. So thank you kindly and um, hopefully see you in two weeks. And thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.